The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I don't like your attitude. I definitely... The defense is wrong. Don't think that guy just says, oh, Wednesday edition of PFT, OT, PFT, PM, PFT, whatever. Chris, we haven't done this in a while. We haven't done this with you at home that I can recall, but hell, I can't recall anything over the past couple of weeks. We had our first day of TV only. No radio breaks to worry about. We had a lot more time to talk. The show actually felt like it moved faster. There's less stress because I'm not constantly worried about the clock, the clock, the clock, and we have a break. Right. And we got this break, and we got back, and we're on radio break, and we're back for a TV segment. We got to go to break there, and we got this break. and It was nice. I enjoyed it. But we had some things we didn't get to because there were so many real NFL news items. And one thing, Chris, I want to start with, I noticed this from USA Today, recent story delving into the coaching career of Steve Belichick the 32-year-old son of Patriots coach Bill Belichick. And uh, it, it raises a bunch of issues for me. And, and it all comes back to the concept of nepotism in coaching. And a lot of people don't like the idea that coaches hire their kids. They think there's something wrong with coaches hiring their kids. Um, as a general proposition, do you have an issue with coaches exercising their prerogative as they fill out a staff to give a job to one of their kids or as a favor to a buddy who coaches another team, that guy's kids. I, I don't, it's a tough subject. Now, do I think it affects, you know, the fact of the fact of maybe lack of minority head coaches and things like that? Yeah, I do. Because of course you're having family members take jobs that are available, but you know, it, it is for the most part, you know, the family business for a lot of these coaches and their and their sons, if they do have an interest in football to where this is all they, you know, eat, you know, just think about, eat, live, breathe every day is football, football, football. And we see it in a lot of other walks of life, whether a guy was, hey, this guy's successful on Wall Street. Oh, his dad worked on Wall Street or this guy's a good doctor. Oh, his dad was a doctor. I mean, that happens in everyday life. I have more issues with Oh, why are, you know, I, I saw this when I was in the NFL, you know, hey, how did you get this job in the front office? Oh, my dad's the owner's lawyer or my dad's the owner's doctor. I have more issues with those people than I do family members. Family members, I can understand. I really can. And I do think there is some value to it nonetheless. And, um, you know, yeah, as much as it can be unsettling that way, you know, I don't know if I have a, a big problem with it. I think it happens for three reasons. First, because so many of these teams are family-owned businesses where there's grooming of the next generation to eventually take over and involvement by the next generation and other relatives. It sure. would feel hypocritical for the owners to say the coaches can't hire their kids too, right? Don't do as we do, do as we say. That just isn't going to fly, and, and it's easier to justify when ownership is rife with nepotism. Secondly, for a lot of these coaches, they're making up for all those lost years where dad was sure. always at work. 
Dad couldn't come to the game. Dad couldn't come to the recital. Where is Dad? That's Dad. I haven't seen Dad in months. Now, all of a sudden, you're with Dad all the time. I think that's a big factor. You're making up for the whole cats in the cradle phenomenon that plays out for coaches all over the country. Agreed. And then finally, and look, and, and I thought of this when I read some comments from your buddy Kyle Shanahan, I think Super Bowl week. When you have been a coach's kid, you bring to the table a valuable skill yes, set and experience. Definitely. You're not freaked out by it. You've been around it your whole life. There's nothing about it that's too big for you. It's the Patrick Mahomes dynamic. Why is he so calm, cool, and collected? Because he's been in clubhouses, Major League Baseball his whole life. It's not too big for him. I think that is a huge value that takes it apart from nepotism. I mean, look, you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. You had the right dad. You were able to come to the office a couple of days a week and get yourself to the point where none of this stuff freaks you out. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you're right. I, I agree with you on all your points. And I think that's what people lose, you know, you know, uh, lose sight of the, the facts of the matter here. You know, these are not like coaches' sons where you just go and like, oh, he's never paid attention to football in his life. And we're going to bring him on the, we're going to bring him on the, you know, uh, on the coaching staff and l- let him have a say now, even though he has no clue what's going on. No. More, you know, almost always these guys are highly qualified individuals because of what I said earlier. It's what they grew up around. It's their their experience. They've been around that way of life. They're nuanced and, you know, some of the tiny details that we wouldn't even think about as outsiders uh, and what it takes to run an organization and be a head coach that way. You know, hey, Sean McVay, is he pretty good? Oh, well, he had a connection. I know it wasn't his father. But his grandfather got him in the NFL, right? Oh, he was worth. He's worth it. He's obviously. Hey, how about Jim Fossil's son? Oh, he's only been like the best special teams coach in football for a long time running here. So you know, Kyle Shanahan, exact same thing. So yes, these are smart people who grew up around it, and know every little detail about coaching and what it takes and how to communicate. So they're very qualified. I have, like I said, much. I don't really have an issue with that part of it. I have more of an issue of, like I said, the guy who's got no clue, he's never been involved in football or any shape of life, but his dad knows the owner and, hey, my son wants to work in football. Oh, okay, here's a job. Have you had any background? No, I just want to do it. Oh, okay. That, to me, is what bothers me more than anything in football. That takes jobs away from the guys that are qualified to get it. Uh, So, you know, I'm all for it. It's the family business for a lot of these people. And, and I think that it makes it even more incumbent on the person who gets the job due to a family relationship or some other connection where somebody knows somebody. You got to come in and bust your ass. It's going to be glaring exactly. when you're somebody who, who got it in the, in the unconventional manner based upon who they know, not what they know. You got to come in and show what you know and what you can do, or you're not going to be there for very long. And when you are there, you're going to be the one that everybody else resents and, uh, and doesn't fit. Because, yeah, we, 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 know, we know why Steve's here. Steve's here because dad's the head coach. But Steve doesn't know a damn thing uh, of what he's doing. Now, as it relates to Steve Belichick and the article uh, that we wrote about it, and I encourage you to read our article and read the original article at USA Today, he clearly has the chops. He clearly is on the fast track. He clearly has the DNA and the work ethic and everything to be another Bill Belichick. And before too long, Bill will be retired and Steve will be the one competing for Super Bowl championships, Chris. Yeah, well, that's a very real possibility. I mean, you know, hey, listen, I was around Steven a little bit. He's smart. He's a really hard worker. And I think he's trying to, you know, stay in his father's shadow 
you know, not not to be a, a kiss ass or anything like that, but he truly wants to learn every little thing that his dad is thinking about during a week or before a game. I remember us being on the Super Bowl, on the field in Super Bowl uh, in, in Minnesota with the Eagles and uh, and New England Patriots. Bra- um, Belichick walks out on the field, you know, as the players are just getting out there, and he he has his little you know checkpoints. He checks the field, he walks around, he looks at the different things. Bill, you know, Stephen Belichick was right there next to him every step of the way. So he can understand what dad's process is. So I get it. The big question is, you know, is he going to take over in New England? Does he need to go somewhere else? Like a Kyle Shanahan went somewhere else and proved himself as one of the best offensive coordinators in football with the Houston Texans. Then he went and worked for his dad with the Washington Redskins. This one's a little different. And, you know, I guess in my heart of hearts, I almost want to say I wish Stephen Belichick would go somewhere else at some point to just show everybody his worth and how good he really is. Or he just hangs around until Bill retires and he takes over. I mean, this was the first year I started to get a sense that maybe Steve's the one who takes over for Bill, not Josh McDaniels. Did you get that sense this year? I I definitely, I feel like that's why Josh McDaniels got into the coaching, head coach coaching conversation, that maybe he saw a little bit of the writing on the wall there that, ooh, Steve Belichick is rising up the ranks and, I might, you know, be the one left without a seat here. Added to the fact that, you know, I, I think there's a number of people in football that look at it right now and think that Belichick kind of screwed over Josh McDaniels and the coaching hirings this year anyways, making him stay in the building, didn't let him go down to Carolina and interview, right? You know, never got a chance to interview with the New York Giants. So, you know, th- those are things I look at too and go, man, how could Josh be real happy with Bill Belichick at this point right now? And I think that would even favor Stephen Belichick even more. Yeah, they get to do the father-son thing for as long as Bill wants to coach. And then when Bill's done coaching, Steve takes over. The other curveball here, though, there are some people who think that Bill Belichick will end his career as an executive, a Bill Parcells type. Not that that ever works. It didn't work for Tom Coughlin. It really didn't work for Bill Parcells. But there's there's a thought that that Bill gets a little slice of equity and is like the VP of football operations for another team. If that would ever happen with a team other than the Patriots, I could see him wanting to hire Steve. And that would be something yeah. if it would play out that way. Yeah, so, sure. I, yeah, I, I, I get that. I don't see Bill doing that, though. I don't. I, I think Bill is – he would be frustrated just being the GM. He'd be like, why aren't you coaching him to do this? Why aren't you doing that? And I, I just think he's got to be in total control. And when he feels like he can't do that, he'll retire. But if his son was the head coach – that can be, be different. Easier. You're right. It would be easier to sell that, right? Uh, no so, doubt. Uh, no doubt. But, but, but we'll see. Look, there, there's no reason for him to stop. He's one. Of, he's the greatest of all time. And, uh, you know, he had at one point said he can't see himself coaching when he's 70. It's easy to say that when you're not 70. Now that he's staring 70 in the face, I think he's going to keep coaching for a while. All right, we've got a few questions to answer before we wrap this up today. We're going to try to use this space to answer some of your questions, have a little more interaction. At Max Hiller 2 what part of the Browns organization is holding them back from winning, Chris? Well, I, I think I'm going to look at ownership at first. And then, you know, I'm going to look at the front office to go along with that. And just, you know, again, I'm, they're all into analytics. And you can't get a job on the coaching staff and the GM, apparently, if you're not into analytics too. You know, but they've been analyzing and doing analytics for four years now. And the team's still been pretty crappy. So at what point do they get held responsible there? I feel like if it was a normal GM or a coach, you know, their their heads would have been chopped off already. You're fired. But for some reason, 
Paul D. Podesta gets to run the team from, you know, halfway across the country and never seems to be accountable for anything within their football team. So, yeah, I just look at it right now and I'm looking at that. And it seems like that's why Stefanski got the job. It seems why the GM got the job. They're all willing to embrace the analytics, which is fine to a degree. Analytics don't tell the whole story. Analytics last year said Will Greer should be the second quarterback drafted in the in the NFL. That was wrong. The analytics were wrong. Sorry. So, you know, uh, yeah, I just I, I look at that as being the number one issue. The, the thing that I find encouraging, it seems like the Browns are finally on the same page. Jimmy Haslam it does. seemingly has preferred to have essentially people pitted against each other and a bunch of different viewpoints. And and the result is somebody wins, somebody loses, somebody gets fired. Now, Paul D. Podesta, the chief strategy officer, he's got the GM he wanted, he's got the coach he wanted, and now let's see if this works. And if it doesn't work, get rid of all of them and start over again. But th- this idea of having an analytics guy and a football guy and expecting them to work together, that's just not going to work. No, so if no you're going to go all in, go all in and see how it plays out. And and, and I right. think that I think ownership has just been – there's a line there. And the, the ownership has been too far on the line of making too many changes, getting too involved, not trusting right. the people they've hired to go about their jobs and do their jobs. All right, that's next right. one. Uh, Oziliqua. Should the Giants go Isaiah Simmons or tackle with the fourth pick in the draft? Yeah, the Giants, are, they're an interesting team. I mean, you know, I would also look at them as, you know, they could possibly trade down, too, if they wanted. You know, so so there's a lot of things. I think if you just look, if I just looked at it at number four right now, uh, that's a tough one. I really like Isaiah Simmons. I'm not sure exactly what position he is, and I haven't deep-dived him yet. He's a stand-up linebacker who is a one of the freakiest athletes in the draft. Now, he lacks a little physicality to me a little bit at the linebacker position, which is concerning to me. So I think all in all, I would probably, if you just maybe pin down what they should do at number four, I would probably go with the offensive tackles. That's a pretty impressive group. You can find a guy that could be your starting left tackle for 10 years. Yeah, and the other thing, too, depending upon how the quarterbacks come off the board, you have an opportunity to trade down and get a lot more lottery tickets, too, because the Giants have more needs than just one player. So if there isn't a guy there that you think is going to be a transcendent talent that is clearly better than the rest, then dangle it for a quarterback, because obviously you're not going to take one, and get more picks and get more good players who can become uh, potentially significant contributors to yes. the team moving forward. Th- th- that's a big thing, Mike, too. Mike, and just one more thing, too. But the, the big question there will be, do they look at Isaiah Ta- uh, Simmons as that type of guy? Because he's a transcendent athlete, but a little bit of Mike, like that Minka Fitzpatrick, remember when he was coming out of college, where it's like, what position is he? Is he a safety, a strong safety, a nickel, a corner? What is he? I think there's some of those questions with Isaiah Simmons, too. Freaky athlete, very special. Uh, I just uh, I think that some of the questions about what position he truly belongs at could end up hurting him a little bit. And I'm with you with the Giants thing. I think there's a good chance they could trade down and and get somebody they want maybe in the, you know, the 12, 13, 14 spot, wherever it may be. Dave Lowe, 78, says he's a lifelong Dolphins fan. He's greatly concerned about the increased risk slash reward factor of Tua Tonga-Vailoa due to his injury history. Does the risk with Tua put Justin Herbert on a more level ground with Tua, in our opinion, as it relates to the Dolphins? And look, Chris, I remember last year with Kyler Murray saying the Cardinals have to take him because it's better to guess wrong on a potential franchise quarterback by taking him and having him not work out 
than to guess wrong by not taking him and having him become that superstar player somewhere else. With Tua, I'm a little more torn in that regard, but if you're looking for your next Dan Marino and it's been over 20 years since you've had a Dan Marino, you know, Tua, does he have more of an upside than Justin Herbert if he's healthy and everything checks out? Where where do you say, I know you've got Herbert ranked higher than Tua, but high-end potential, who's got more of it? There, it's it's Herbert. There's no doubt. Herbert can be special. I mean, Herbert can do things that, you know, again, I'll say this, you know, you put Herbert on Alabama, it's not fair. It's not going to be fair. He's a better athlete. He's bigger. He's a stronger arm. He's just about every bit as accurate. Okay. You know, so uh, honestly, Mike, you know, and again, I like Tua in his game. I, Tua is not a top 10 draftable quarterback to me. We, even without the injuries, I would not draft Tua in the top 10. I don't think he's an special elite player at the position. I think everybody's being fooled by the machine of Alabama and going giving one guy the credit. And I just go, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give the quarterback credit for throwing a four-yard slant and then Henry Ruggs running 70 yards for a touchdown. I'm not going to go, oh, my gosh, where did they get this quarterback? Holy cow, he's doing things I've never seen before, let alone – the injury history plays small. Those are really concerning. I think it would be a huge mistake for the Dolphins to take two at number five. I think there's only two top 10 quarterbacks in this draft for me, and that's Burrow and Herbert. And then there's, you know, Jordan Love and Tua, which I look at as, you know, back half of the first round type draft picks. So your answer to Dave Lowe is forget about Tua, take Herbert if Herbert's there without question. Take without Herbert and run. question. Without question, take Herbert and run. Herbert has special game-changing qualities, and you know, to me, there's there's a lot of risk with Tua. I just I, I I don't see it. I'm sorry. All right, let's wrap up where we started today. At Blue Road Earth wants to know: Do you know of contingency plans being made by the NFL to play in the fall? I can't see how it can be business even close to as usual five months from now we talked about this when we went on the air at 7 a.m eastern chris the nonchalance that i detected from jeff pash the nfl's general counsel saying our plan is to go forward with a full season full stadiums 16 games start on time i i, I just hope that is some kind of strange bravado and that behind that they really are churning and working and 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 generating ideas for how to get the most uh, out of a bad situation if we do get to the point where this coronavirus pandemic requires the NFL to truncate the season. I just think it is way too optimistic at this point to plan for a full football season. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Mike. And I don't hear any rumors of any contingency plans. And that's the thing I brought up during the show that scares me a little bit. You know, there's just no talk of that. We're hearing rumors about, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA basketball, hockey, trying to figure out ways to finish their season and make things right that way. We haven't heard one inkling. And I've talked to a lot of coaches while I'm sitting my butt here at home during this this lockdown. And I'm just telling you, none of them have heard anything either. And they are very skeptical that this season will be normal. I think most coaches look at it right now and just go, there's no way. How? How can we play a full slate of, uh, you know, a full slate of scheduled games and everything like that? It doesn't look good right now. Yeah, I think that I would prefer the NFL to say we're planning not just for a season, we're planning for everything. And we'll be ready for whatever the public health situation dictates at the time. We're optimistic 
that we will be in a spot where we can play in full stadiums by then. But if we can't, we will have a plan. I think that's what's more comforting to people. Not this kind of stubborn, we intend to go forward, because people are going to look at that and say, are you not paying attention to what's happening in the world? And I think the more comforting thing is, don't worry, we will have a plan. No matter what happens, we will have a plan. We're identifying all of our options, and we will bring you football in 2020. I I think that would go a lot farther to make people think the NFL, number one, uh, gets it, and number two, really is connected to reality when it comes to coming up with a plan for 2020. Yeah, well, I, you know, it, it bothers me. And that's where, you know, I, I get into the conversation again where, you know, the commissioner for our sport works for the 32 owners. And he's not necessarily always seemed to be worried about everybody else. It's more about just pleasing them. You know, and I look at, yeah, my neighbor who lives down the street here, Adam Silver. You know, I just think he's shown great leadership throughout this, you know, let alone just easing the public, easing the players of his league. There's constant conversation and rumors about alternate plans and what they might do. And I think as an NFL football fan and a guy who loves the NFL, and I got great respect for Roger Goodell, I just don't hear enough of that. And that bothers me a little bit. Well, and and just think of it this way, and I'm not trying to make it political. Look how long it took the experts who are providing advice to the president to finally break down that wall to get him to understand this is serious. And all accounts coming out of yesterday's briefing from the White House is that the the president was as concerned and as as pessimistic as he's ever been. Um, finally, because they they put the paperwork on his desk that got his attention about how serious it's going to be. And, and I think maybe in time, assuming that there are experts around the commissioner, they can get the commissioner to understand that this this, you know, that group dynamic of everything is going to be fine. If you have enough people in the room saying everything is going to be fine, they're all going to believe everything is going to be fine, even if it's not. That's my concern, that it's just this echo chamber where they've got themselves convinced it's going to be fine. And then someday they're going to open the door and they're going to say, holy crap, it's not fine. And then they're not going to have enough time to come up with a good plan. That's why I'm saying now take it seriously and come up with the plans, because if you wait until after the draft, if you wait until June or July, you're going to not be in a position to come up with the best plan. And and you're going to have to have to pull the plug on the season. All right, let's pull the plug on the show. You got anything else you want to add? No, I think we hit it all. You the man. All right, great day today. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for checking us out. Tomorrow, back on PFT Live, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern. Have a great Wednesday. We'll see you Thursday. See ya. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.